You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Wednesday, August 3rd, 2021. I'm joined today by our panel, Shenley and Seth, who will ask to answer the question, are you watching the Olympics this year? Let's start with Shenley. Um, no, I'm not. No interest or just not watching this year? Both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seth? Same. I'm not really watching them. I'm more of a Winter Olympics guy than myself. Okay. And I'm Tony Fernando, and I am watching a very small bit, but I don't have uh, cable anymore, so I'm watching on streaming, and it's just not the same. Reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Now I'll turn the episode over to Seth. The article this week is authored by Joseph Greenhall and is in titled, uh, I Didn't Volunteer for This, A Solution for Protecting Volunteers from Discrimination in Massachusetts. It was published by the Western New England Law Review in 2017. In the article, Greenhall discusses the general lack of protections against discrimination afforded by our legal system to volunteers. At the federal level, circuit courts are split on the issue of applying Title VII to the civil, uh, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to volunteers because legally, Volunteers are rarely considered employees of an entity or an organization. From a state law perspective, only a few states have opted to address the issue and provide some sort of protection or legal remedy for volunteer discrimination. In short, the author concludes by proposing states, specifically Massachusetts, uh, broaden the definition of a place of public accommodation and adopt statutory language allowing claims to be brought against entities who commit volunteer discrimination and actively solicit volunteers. So for the first question, uh, the First Circuit ruled in Mahoney that a volunteer uh, may be covered by Title VII if they are, quote unquote, receiving benefits from that volunteer position. The author and potentially the First Circuit as well didn't define what constitutes a benefit though. In your view, uh, what benefits received by a volunteer would be sufficient to compel uh, discrimination protections again uh, under Title VII? We'll uh, start with Shenley. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I thought this was a very great article, Seth. I really enjoyed reading it, especially because I'm interested in employment law. So uh, this was interested from that standpoint. Um, I, I don't know, because to me, like benefits would be what would class them, classify them either as a W-2 employee or as like an independent contractor. Um, so, you know, just like this hypo that they started off with in the story, I mean, in the, in the law review article with the two gentlemen who wanted to volunteer, I mean, I just think from a, a dignity perspective, like treating those people in that disrespectful way and, um, you know, not allowing them to provide service um, to, uh, I think it was a food bank, just because the management thought that they might be um, gay, you know, was definitely uh, just as far as being a person, um, you know, discriminatory. So, I, I don't know. I, I think that, yeah, um, there should be protections, but uh, like, I, I have absolutely no idea where it should start and where it should end. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry, Tony. So, with the question of, of what level of benefit could constitute receiving benefits, I, I was not convinced by the kind of generalized benefits to volunteers that the author was kind of trying to put forward at the end end of the article where volunteers have um, health benefits and better mental health and so on just from the act of volunteering in and of itself sort of intrinsically part of volunteering 
I don't think that that rises to the level of con- compensation. But that said, uh, I used to be involved in the regulation of drones. And um, there are different regulatory schemas that you end up in based on whether or not you're compensated or not. And one thing that we wrestled with as an industry is that uh, as written, the compensation did not have to be monetary. So when I was giving presentations to stakeholders and say, you know, a plate of cookies is compensation. So like if you go take pictures with your drone of your neighbor's property uh, and they give you a plate of cookies, now you you should be complying with the commercial regulations as opposed to the, the hobbyist regulations. Um, and there's some case law to support that, not using cookies, but um, that, that the compensation didn't have to be monetary or significant um, in order to shift. And I think that with volunteers, you could say something similar. So like if somebody is getting a t-shirt for the act of volunteering or somebody is getting something tangible um, in exchange, then I, I think that that does reach the point where um, maybe this concept that a volunteer could be an employee could, could come into play if there is no separate protection for volunteers um, you know, under a, a state law or something like that. What did you think? I wasn't really sure myself either. Um, when I was thinking of benefit, I was I was thinking of sort of intangible benefits and and sort of how broad can that be? Could it be just that that sort of feeling good about what you're doing? Is is that sufficient to to, to warrant a benefit? And I would say probably not. But um, yeah, Tony, I think I, I think I probably agree with you on that one. Where there is some even uh, menial benefit to be to be given that that could kind of classify someone as an employee our laws prohibit discrimination on multiple bases for uh core human rights and necessities like employment and housing um but our double-edged sword of freedom at least in this nation allows individuals to generally discriminate against others in in more social and, and personal settings so you know as a basic example you're not legally required to you know, be a friend of or, or date or anything, uh, a citizen who falls within a protected class. But of course, they're, you know, these, these citizens are protected under uh, the Title VII classes. So is volunteerism enough of a necessity to allow the legal system uh, to step in and establish protections? Or is volunteerism more of a luxury or just sort of a general social good in a way that would place it in the same realm as maybe dating or just being kind to someone um, and thereby allowing such discrimination to fall into the bucket of personal freedom. Tony, you want to take that one first? Um, Well, the author certainly seemed to think that it it was a necessity. Um, I think that it in practice depends on what the activity being performed actually is. So like a lot of the case will involve volunteer fire departments. I certainly think that volunteer fire departments should should permit anybody to be a member of the volunteer fire department. I, I cannot see the the uh, rationale behind uh, discrimination in those cases. I think that discrimination in general is ugly um, and not to be encouraged. But um, we do allow for free association. Um, some volunteer activities do not rise to the same level as you know putting out fires. Um, as far as the social utility. So um, I, I, I think that I'll, I'll give the lawyer answer that it depends and it's a, f- a fact-specific inquiry. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of still go back to this whole like dignity thing because even though like Tony pointed out, like the article does talk about like, and that was really 
a, a good analogy with the volunteer firefighters being discriminated against. Uh, and that was blatant discrimination. But I also feel like even if someone is doing like mills on wheels and, you know, they go to someone's house and the person doesn't want to let them in because or accept the food from them because, you know, they might be a racist or a sexist. Um, uh, again, like why, I, I, you know, this this person has a right to have these aberrant feelings, but it's it definitely kind of takes away from the social utility of service and volunteering when you have to deal with that type of behavior. So um, I, I just feel like from a, a just a personal dignity standpoint, you know, it shouldn't, you know, there shouldn't be a clear line of whether it's, you know, um, is it a luxury good, a social good or whatever. I just, you know, feel like from being a good person, um, you know, there, there should just be that. I'm going to try to reword this question a little bit, but um, no, I think you should go with it as written. Just go with it as written. All right. Yeah. So uh, next question on a scale of one to 10, uh, how inept is a manager of an organization who turns away free labor or income specifically because they don't personally like the donor's skin tone or religion or nationality, uh, sex or age. Go with uh, Shenley on the first one for that. I mean, I think that they'd have to be crazy to turn away free labor, you know, for their own biases. I used to work as a volunteer coordinator and it was always hard to get people to, you know, give up their time and service and come spend time with the people um, at the place that I worked. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know that you could let your personal feelings get in the way of that. I guess maybe if you're working up with a certain population that feels the way, same way you do. Um, and you think that you're doing public interest work and that interest work um, includes discriminating against people, maybe, you know, that that's kind of your thing, but you'd have to be crazy to turn away free labor. Tony? Again, I'm, I'm going to give the lawyer answer. It depends and context is everything. Um, there are reasons to refuse a donation. And like one example I can come up with from an organizational standpoint is that, you know, although I would welcome a Federalist Society member to be on the podcast, join our panel, choose an article. If the Federalist Society or the Heritage Foundation offered to sponsor us, I'd turn it down. Um, I have more trouble coming up with an example where it's reasonable on the basis of a protected class, but I'm concerned that that's a failure of imagination rather than because there's no good reason. Uh, the closest example I was able to come up with um, for myself was that like, you know, if you're a scout group and you're putting together a teen volunteer day to clean up a park or something and some 30 year old random guy has nothing on his background, but a 30 year old wants to join this activity, you should be able to say, no, that that man should not join in with these teens for this this activity. And, and that's age discrimination, but that's also one that I think society would be prepared to accept. Um, I do think that there's a lot of context here. So the author is con conflates three different types of volunteers, um, service volunteers who are providing labor, donor volunteers who are providing cash, or, or items, and then interns. And of those, I think that it's very clear that interns should have the full protection of, of being an employee because they are functionally being employees, whether or not they're being paid. Um, I can see a similar case for service volunteers. I'm not enthused about extending protections to donors generally. The author discusses public accommodation standard, uh, the public accommodation standard courts use to determine if discrimination protections apply. Massachusetts defines a place of public accommodation as any place, whether licensed or unlicensed, 
which is open to and accepts or solicits the patronage of the general public. So for the first part of this question, um, is the public accommodation standard optimal? And are there different classes of volunteer activities that maybe by the nature of that activity uh, should be afforded protection from discrimination? We've kind of already touched on this a little bit in the previous answers, it seems, but um, what do you think? I think that, like, just going off the firefighter one, like, I feel like if there is um, the equivalent in private industry or, or public industry where they would be covered um, as a protected class, like, you know, I think, in the, like you were saying in an article, um, women couldn't join the fire de- volunteer fire departments. And I don't think that that would be the case um, as if they were paid firefighters. So I think that, you know, that women should be afforded the same protection from the volunteer standpoint um, that they would be if it was a, a paid position. Um, but um, I do think that there, you know, you have to be careful with something like that because you definitely want to make sure that it's consistent. But it doesn't seem right that, you know, if, if a woman was going to work for like the county or the state as a firefighter, you know, she would be able, eligible to still compete for the position, but would be excluded from being a volunteer firefighter. It just doesn't seem consistent to me. Yeah, I think I, I agree with uh, Shenley. I, I think that when there exists a private sector or government sector equivalent um, that where an employee would be protected, the volunteer should be protected as well. I don't like a test. So one of the things you can do when you're considering hypothetical legislation is you create a whole bunch of hypotheticals and you see where the results are because you know what the results are that you want. And I don't want a law that allows volunteer fire departments to exclude women or exclude somebody on race or something like that. Um, I, I'm not 100% sold that this public accommodation standard is optimal, but perfect is the enemy of the good. And um, I think that the author put forward a reasonably clear argument uh, for why this was a good or workable standard. Um, and I couldn't really come up with anything off the top of my head that was better. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat that the public accommodation standard, I think, is is pretty broad. I mean, it, it allows, um, I mean, God, you can all argue that almost anything would would be in there um, that was some sort of a business. But, um, yeah, the, in the state-specific, especially the volunteer um, requirement that they be, or the firefighter requirement that they be all males, I think was... Um, yeah, little little law, and you know that that shouldn't be allowed. But it should also, you know, you you would think the management, whoever manages these things, would also uh, open up that door to to allow non male uh, volunteer firefighters. I think that's a little uh, little absurd rule that they have down there in West Virginia. But the second part of that question is, um, if public accommodation is not an optimal standard, uh, what do you propose is a reasonable legal standard we could apply to parse out? types of volunteer activities that should and should not be afforded protection from discrimination. And we might even kind of be belaboring this point a little bit. Well, I don't know if we're belaboring the point. I do think that this comes back to one of the pet topics of mine, if you will. Um, So if you think about those volunteer fire departments saying that no, no women can apply. And 
there wasn't enough information in the article to say why that was the case, but you can think of the reasons that would have been put forward by the you know county commission or whatever that created those women are weaker on average or they don't form you know cohesive bonds that that men do, all of which is nonsense, right? But it is also consistent with the science of say the 1920s and 1930s or 1940s, right? Um, and I think this raises kind of an epistemological question of what are we trying to do with our law and how do we make decisions when we have flawed science that is telling us it's okay to discriminate against gay men or again um, in blood transfusions or against um, you know women who want to be firefighters and like i don't have an answer to that question <laughs> um so i don't know what you guys think yeah, I don't really have anything. What's your opinion on the author's proposal of broadly defining place of public accommodation and uh, including statutory language, allowing volunteers who are subject to discrimination to bring a claim against an entity who actively solicits volunteers? Shenley? I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, I keep going back to, you know, obviously, you want I want people to be treated with dignity and whatever um, they're doing. Um, so I, I, I think that um, they, you know, entities that do discriminate against certain classes of people should be held accountable, um, you know, for their discriminatory acts and, um, you know, possibly held responsible um, for, you know, these policy decisions that they make. Um, but I also feel like if I don't know. And this is not really a well-developed thought because I'm thinking that if, if they are accepting volunteers, they probably don't have a lot of resources. If they, you know, sue them, it might like bankrupt them and put them out of business totally. And that might be a good thing since they're perpetuating discrimination. But, um, you know, they might be providing some type of service that is important to some people. So I don't know that I, I, I absolutely don't think, you know, no one should be discriminated against. Everyone should be treated with dignity. Um, and there should be recourse available to anyone who feels like they're discriminated against, um, you know, as far as, um, you know, changing that behavior. But I don't I don't know necessarily know what that looks like, I guess, is what my answer is. Tony? Yeah, I I, I broadly agree with Shenley. I would prefer people, all people be treated with dignity. Um, I'm not in favor of discrimination. Um, I do think that there was a uh, there was a Fifth Circuit uh, case um, where the article mentioned that it was you know the the Fifth Circuit said that it was Congress's prerogative to provide a remedy to volunteers if they wanted to and they didn't um, and that the courts shouldn't be providing the remedy and I'm kind of at least from a legal standpoint that makes sense to me as a rationale that you know the legislature has legislatures state and federal have the ability to provide protections for volunteers and to the extent that they don't that is the legislature's deciding not to on the other hand we have a long history in this country of the legislature's either not fulfilling their responsibility or actively harming people in the way that they pass legislation um so i don't know that that's a full and complete answer to what should be done either and one of the frustrating things about law school sometimes is that we talk about what is but that doesn't necessarily translate to or that doesn't necessarily map well to what should be or what's fair um 
Yeah, so I thought the I thought the author's proposal at the end was interesting. Uh, one thing to consider going forward, I think, is once you uh, have the legislature establish that avenue to a remedy through the courts, uh, the court's going to decide these cases, at least many of them, on a strict scrutiny basis because that's what Title VII, uh, or at least some of the suspect classes in, in Title VII typically warrant. And strict scrutiny basis, basically, um, it, it assumes that the government's law um, is uh, invalid unless they can show some sort of absolutely necessary means um, for having that discriminatory law. And um, although I, I don't know that the, you know the policy of a of a volunteer organization would would necessarily fall under that, because uh, we're not talking about government law here. But um, I, I do think kind of looking forward in the process of of that remedy is. Uh, is an interesting area to explore. Yeah, so I guess if uh, the, I get if, under that, then the organizations, if they could present a compelling interest, you know, they could possibly get away with the discrimination. So if, you know, we're at the nursing home and you're saying that I want to discriminate against Black people being volunteers because the senior citizen residents don't feel comfortable around them, like, do you think that they would be able to get away with something like that under that test? I don't think that would be enough. I think that would be uh, that would be discrimination. I think. I don't think that would work for an employee. Um, that would. I, I don't think that would be permitted for an employee. So I think, by extension, the object would be for that to not work for for a volunteer. But whether that's functionally the case, I'm not sure. Well, I enjoyed the article. It was really good. Yeah, I thought it was too. It was an interesting article. Well, thanks again to our panel, Shenley and Seth. A reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by Twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student and want to join the panel, get in contact. Audio post-processing by Mohamed Salim. Series producer is Tony Fernando. Podcast adjourned.